All taxation is politics, and of course we all know there's a multitude of taxes on property, gasoline, food, drugs, lots of other things, even death. Again, it's all about politics, especially when it comes to taxing the profits of multinational corporations. That's according to Gonzalo Freixas. He is adjunct professor and associate dean at UCLA Anderson School of Management. Until recently, American companies could escape American taxes by sheltering their assets overseas in countries where taxes are lower. But that created problems for those countries, too. So in the first year of the Biden administration, the U.S. and more than 100 other countries agreed to a solution. It's called the Global Minimum Tax. It would be the same for all countries worldwide. But remember, taxation is politics. The global minimum tax has not been enacted yet, and it could be in trouble. Hello again, I'm Armin Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast of UCLA Anderson. Gonzalo Freixas, thanks so much for being on board. Hi, how are you, Warren? Great to be here. I am well. I hope you are, too. How much American money are we talking about that's being sheltered off seashore, and where is it? Well, most of the major American corporations in such areas as tech and pharma have over the years created a lot of subsidiaries around the world to shelter much of their income outside the U.S. borders from U.S. taxation. The things I've read indicate that between 1982 and 2021, the investments overseas went from $580 billion up to $6.4 trillion in investments overseas. The translation of that means that profits of about $2.4 trillion have not been taxed by the United States. And these were American companies that are making profits overseas through subsidiaries in low-tax countries in order to prevent the long arm of the IRS from reaching them. $2.4 trillion worth of profits. How much taxes are we talking about? Up until 2018, the tax rate was 35%. We're certainly talking about, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $800 billion. Uh, what are some of the places that's most popular for companies to shelter their taxes? For some reason, there's an affinity by islands to have low tax rates. So a few of the islands in the Caribbean have a zero corporate tax rate. The biggest single place where these profits have been sheltered by American corporations is the Cayman Islands, for example. But then there are other places that are popular like Ireland, Luxembourg, Puerto Rico, Singapore, Malaysia, just to name a few, all of whom have historically had a very, very low tax rate in particular in comparison to most of the EU countries and the United States. You mentioned Puerto Rico. That's a U.S. territory. It's not subject to U.S. taxation? It is not. In fact, Puerto Rico is uh, sometimes been known as a biotech island. The major pharmaceutical, medical device, and biotech companies have major manufacturing facilities there because of their very low tax rate. And by having manufacturing facilities there, they're able to legally escape any U.S. taxation. And from there, they sell their stuff all over the world, and all of that income is never touched by the United States government. So I understand that many other countries that lower their tax rates in order to compete for the kind of subsidiary investment that uh, you're talking about by American companies. Why does that cause problems for them in addition to getting that money in? Well, what's happened over the last uh, two decades, it's been what we call a race to the bottom. Over that period of time, 
The average corporate tax around the world has gone from something in the 40s to in the 20s in terms of the percentage or the rate. In fact, our own country, the United States, joined that race to the bottom by lowering its corporate tax rate from 35% to 21% starting in 2018 when President Trump was president. And the reason they do that is to compete to attract these companies from creating subsidiaries there because the tech companies really don't manufacture a lot. It's mostly intellectual property. A lot of them have shifted their patents overseas to these low-tax jurisdictions to then license all their products around the world and shelter all their income from American taxation. So again, how do the other countries suffer from this? Because in order to compete, they're lowering and lowering and lowering their corporate tax rates. That's benefiting companies, but it is denying these countries proper taxation revenue to fund their basic government operations, their infrastructure, damaging the country's ability to fund their government in order to be competitive and attract companies. What was the rationale for lowering America's tax rate down from 35%? Well, it was part of a complex system that was set in place based on, on sound tax policy and public policy. And that was because our companies were going overseas so much, by lowering our tax rates, we would entice them to stay here and do the business here. Secondly, that was done in conjunction with some changes to how the U.S. taxes international transactions, where before, when the companies with these trillions of dollars in monies overseas, if they brought any of it back to the U.S., something called repatriation, they would then have to pay taxes at 35% on that money. So what the Trump administration did is they created some new taxes on these overseas operations, but then they allowed these American companies to repatriate all of that money overseas without any tax, tax-free. And it has resulted in about a trillion of that money coming back to the U.S., but the taxes that were implemented in conjunction with that to help pay for it, the companies have been able to lobby their way around a lot of those. You use the term lobby. Uh, there we are back with taxation being politics again. So special interests have a lot to do with this. Very true. And so the lobbyists for a lot of companies, from Procter & Gamble to the tech companies to the pharma companies, Amazon, for example, they all set about trying to carve out exemptions from certain taxes. And then there's a big, bad, scary Supreme Court case right now that's some individuals with relatively small investments in an Indian subsidiary are challenging the constitutionality of a major tax called the transition tax that was implemented to help pay for all these tax cuts. And if the Supreme Court declares that law unconstitutional, all of these major companies are going to be receiving tens of billions of dollars in tax breaks and tax refunds from our government. Has it been argued so far at the U.S. Supreme Court? It has not yet. The oral arguments are coming up. Some interesting uh, politicking in the sense that Senator Durbin in the Senate asked one of the justices, Alito, to recuse himself from deciding this case because he had been interviewed by one of the organizations that was the big proponent of this case. And then two of the justices on the Supreme Court have major stock holdings in these corporations that would directly benefit from this tax law being overturned. So to be determined, we'll see what happens. It's called Moore versus U.S., by the way. So you mentioned some high-tech companies, Silicon Valley, that are blue, uh, and yet they appear to be allying themselves with the Republicans. Is there some dissonance there? You can certainly make an argument that there is. 
The issue is that these companies have to look out for their shareholders and to minimize their tax burden. And so they're just doing what's in the best interest of the bottom line. And it's not just the tech companies. Uh, another major player here is Berkshire Hathaway, you know, which many of them are also associated with the blue team, if you will. And so it's just a marriage of convenience. And so there would have to probably be a couple of these companies that would step forward and in essence, quote unquote, volunteer to, to maybe do something short of the full global minimum tax in order to minimize their liability for something that may become an eventual reality. So tell us about the global minimum tax and how would that change things? All right, so let's talk about the global minimum tax. About 130 countries have adopted this. This was initially done in 2021. And the idea is that all of these countries agreed that they would tax corporate profits at a minimum of 15%. These multinational companies, particularly American companies, would have nowhere to go, if you will, to run these phantom operations, you know, sometimes just a post office box, in order to shelter billions of dollars of revenue because it would be taxed at 15%. Additionally, it gave the countries that signed on to this the power to reallocate the income to the places where they were actually selling their products or services so that it would shift a lot of the income to the home country so that it would be properly taxed in that home country. So that's how the minimum tax would work. So it would, in essence, stop this race to the bottom in terms of everybody lowering their taxes by agreeing that 15% was the right amount. And then it would allow companies to shift and allocate where the companies are actually doing business so that they're taxed in those places where they're actually doing business. So it sounds like a great overall solution, but I take it it is incredibly complicated because every one of these countries is going to have to enact it however it chooses to do so. Uh, That is correct. So far, 11 countries have actually enacted it. Additionally, the European Union has adopted this for all of their 27 member states and are in the process now of going around country by country to have each of their governments adopt the changes necessary. Uh, Although some of them already have, countries like Belgium and France and Germany and the Netherlands have already adopted it specifically. And then in the U.S., they tried and actually it passed the House of Representatives when it was under Democratic hands. Couldn't pass the Senate. And so they kind of came up with a big step one towards that by adopting a alternative corporate minimum tax of 15%. Not exactly the same thing, but at least it's a step in the right direction. So what are the chances for enactment now by the Congress in the state that it is? Most of the Republican Party opposes both the global minimum tax and the alternative corporate minimum tax uh, because it results in more taxation for corporations and they usually favor lower taxes for corporations. And so as long as the House is in Republican hands, not likely to pass. And even if the House flips to the Democrats and Biden wins re-election and keep a Democratic Senate, some of these If they become a treaty, it requires a two-thirds majority in the Senate to ratify the treaty. So it's going to be very difficult to implement this per se. So the Biden administration is doing the best it can with the uh, corporate minimum tax and then trying to implement uh, some of the ways it interprets taxation of international transactions to comply in other ways with the agreement. When the uh, best available alternative passed the House, but not the Senate, was the Senate in Democratic or Republican hands at that point? It was in Democratic hands, but guess who got in the way? Their names are Cinema and our senator from West Virginia, Manchin. 
They refused to go along, but then as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, they did agree to a corporate minimum tax. But, for example, Cinema, to get that 51st vote, insisted that a very favorable bonus depreciation still be allowed by companies, which was a big benefit to the large corporations. Because remember, this global minimum tax, it's only going to apply to companies that have more than $750 million in revenues. So this is really going to only affect the major multinationals. You have to wonder, given particularly that this is an international effort, how it looks to other countries, not just when we have the kind of chaos we do in the House, they've hardly had time to absorb that, but when Democrats are divided, it appears it's going to be very, very difficult to institute the global minimum tax, even though it would be a benefit to a lot of countries. I agree. This is the nature of our political system. You know, even the Republicans right now, as we speak, of course, are very divided. But this is the reality of democratic governance. And so the president has to work with the government he has to try to pass the best law that can be passed, which is in part why our tax code is so complex, is that you have these opposing forces that want to accomplish different goals. And so you end up with a hodgepodge of different credits and benefits as the Congress tries to social engineer our society. And let's go back to this Moore case in the Supreme Court of the United States. Sounds like the impact of that would be devastating. It would be. It would cost tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. government. That's for sure. I know that it it involves um, two Americans that had like a $400,000 investment in a Indian company. What's interesting is these people I think the total taxes they're talking about is like $150,000 or something really small in comparison to the billions that Amazon would save, for example. But everybody's jumped on their case as the sort of bandwagon, if you will, because they know that if they're able to defeat this tax, the companies will all gain. And so a lot of the big corporate lobbying groups are behind it. See, when Trump adopted that, the tax act that reduced the corporate rate to 21% and then allowed the countries to repatriate their money tax-free, they implemented something that sometimes has been called the repatriation tax or or their transition tax. They told the companies, look, you're going to get these huge benefits, but there's a price of admission. And the toll is that all the profits you've made overseas, but going back to 1986, you're going to have to pay a one-time tax of 8% on all those profits. You have eight years to pay it. And that way, this will help fund all of these tax cuts that we're giving you. So this is the transition tax. This is how we transition into this new system. This case is saying that's not constitutional under the 16th Amendment. You're not taxing money that was actually earned this year. You're taxing things that happened in the past. So it's not something called realized income and therefore is unconstitutional under a strict reading of the 16th Amendment. Revenues then could be drastically reduced. You're saying we couldn't pay for the tax cuts that were granted when Trump was president. It would blow an even bigger hole in our deficit. For example, Apple alone would get $37 billion in tax relief. Microsoft, $18 billion. Google, $10 billion. Johnson & Johnson, $10 billion. And on and on and on. And so these companies would get all these billions back or have to avoid paying all these billions in this transition tax, yet they still get the tax cut down to 21% on the rate, and they still get to bring back overseas profits tax-free. If they can defeat this, then it's really gutted what the Republicans were trying to do in adopting the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. 
Is there anybody in Congress who's paying attention to this? Are there potential enactments in the event that Congress can get its act together that might help to salvage the revenue of the United States? Well, the Democrats overseeing tax policy in the Senate certainly are. Haven't read very much about what, if anything, are the Republicans in the House doing about this. It would be a significant ruling because some of the experts that have written about this says it would almost be this titanic shift of creating tax policy from the Congress to the Supreme Court. I suppose there's a constitutional issue there, but only the Supreme Court could make any kind of ruling on it, and so uh, that's not likely to be brought. Well, what's interesting, Warren, is that It's kind of under the radar, right? Very few people know that this is happening and it could have such a major impact. Is anybody trying to blow the whistle other than you? There have been the policy groups that advocate tax fairness are certainly bringing attention to it. There are groups out there that are certainly trying to sound the alarm, but of course the case hasn't been decided yet, so we we just don't know what's going to happen. So we started out talking about the potential for the global minimum tax. Has that become, at least for the moment, a sort of distant dream? Not really, because many countries are very much implementing it. We implemented a corporate minimum tax. There are some similarities in what the two taxes are doing. They both have a 15% rate. Another significant thing, both the global minimum tax and the alternative corporate minimum tax that the Biden administration passed, they both base the income on what we call book income, accounting income, rather than taxable income where the companies have been able to eliminate a lot of their tax liability by taking a bunch of deductions and going through loopholes and credits and things like that. It would very much look at what their books are reflecting they actually made rather than what the fictitious numbers that they put up for taxable income when they throw in depreciation and and other kinds of uh, tax trickery. Those are two steps in the right direction with a minimum rate that we've all agreed upon and a minimum way to calculate that rate that we're all agreeing upon that is better for governments. The only issue is that it's what Biden passed isn't really addressing the money that's being made overseas. What if other countries all adopted and the U.S. doesn't pass that treaty? Uh, Would we in some way be left out in the cold or would it simply be impossible given the uh, importance of the United States in this whole international economy? There is a component of the agreement that is a treaty that countries have on avoiding double taxation and changes to our treaties with the 65 countries with whom we have these treaty relationships. That would require a two-thirds Senate adoption. The rest of the agreement was agreed to as an agreement, not a treaty, and it does not require the government to ratify it. It just requires a majority in the Congress to pass the legislation needed to implement it. And that did happen in the House, where a simple majority is all you need, did not happen in the Senate because a couple of Democrats were opposed. And of course, you have the filibuster. Although remember, for tax policy, even in the Senate, all you need is 50% plus one. What's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? Well, I think the worst case scenario is that none of the uh, pillars, because they list in the global minimum tax agreement, these pillars that countries would adopt Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Europe has already adopted Pillar 1, and just recently the EU adopted Pillar 2 for implementation. What would happen is the U.S. would just not be a full partner in this, and the president's administration would try as best as it could to implement what it could under existing law, but obviously the entire agreement would not be implemented in the United States. 
if the Republicans take the White House and the Senate, then in 2024, they could even just withdraw from the agreement, as is what happened with the Paris Accords, uh, the Paris Agreement. Best case scenario is there are sufficient people in Congress that see the value of this. They could be prompted by what happens in this Moore case to implement more of the pillars of this tax to equalize how companies are taxed around the world. A big component of this is the U.S. would be able to tax the profits that some of these major companies make in these low-tax jurisdictions where they're not really doing a whole lot of business. And they'd be able to tax it where the income is actually taking place, a lot of which could be back here. Others think that we'd be losing some tax revenue to other countries because they would be increasing their rates to 15%. Janet Yellen did an analysis of at least the first pillar of the act. She uh, concluded that it would be roughly revenue neutral for the U.S. How are the pillars different? In a nutshell, pillar one does not implement the global minimum tax. All pillar one does, it says countries uh, may redistribute tax revenues from the countries where large multinationals do business to the countries where they actually have customers. So it would be a fairer way to tax them. So if they're sheltering all of their profits in an Irish subsidiary to do sales then later here in the U.S. or in India, you know, those countries could now more shift the profits they're reporting in Ireland to the sales that are actually occurring in the actual home countries. So that's pillar one. So let's call pillar one a redistribution of tax revenue. And then pillar two, which has four components, but that's the one that actually implements the global minimum tax. And it does so sort of in four stages to implement it, which includes a domestic minimum tax and what income companies must include when they report income to make sure that they're adequately taxed, which gets into this whole financial accounting data rather than tax accounting data. Would that require congressional action? But pillar one wouldn't? There's enough in in our laws right now with something called subpart F that currently grants the IRS the power to redistribute income for tax reporting purposes. So I think they could and they are implementing some aspects of Pillar 1 without congressional legislation. For Pillar 2, you absolutely need congressional legislation because it would replace our current tax system with this minimum tax as far as multinationals doing business overseas are. So it's a very complex situation involving not just the Congress, but of course also the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and politics are applicable there too. Absolutely. In terms of what the Supreme Court decides the Constitution will support or not support. Gonzalo Frasius, thank you so much for a very important lesson in how taxation is politics and how complicated that can be. Great to have you with us, and thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Okay, this has been How the World Works, a podcast from UCLA Anderson. I'm Warren Alney. Thanks for listening. Join us again.